woke up this morning, there was trouble in my mind. I tried some meditation, but no peace could I find. Called up my guru. I asked him what to do. He said, son, you just got to remember that first noble truth. You were born to suffer. You were born to pay your dues. And that path goes on forever when you got the Buddha blues. A little piece from the show. I just thought I'd give you a little taste of it. No, no, no. That's all right. Um, the title of the show is Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again, and just in time. And uh, I also have a new book out called Crazy Wisdom Saves the World Again. <laughs> so I thought I'd start tonight, just uh, read you a, a piece from it, a, a poem called Why I Meditate, after Allen Ginsberg, who also wrote a poem by that name. I meditate because I suffer. I suffer, therefore I am. I am, therefore I meditate. I meditate because there are so many other things to do. I meditate because when I was young it was all the rage. I meditate because Siddhartha Gautama, Bodhidharma, Marco Polo, the British Raj, Carl Jung, Alan Watts, Jack Kerouac, Alfred E. Newman, et al. I meditate because I have all the information I need. I meditate because the largest colonies of living beings, the coral reefs, are dying. I meditate because I want to touch into deep time where the history of humanity can be seen as just an evolutionary adjustment period. I meditate because evolution gave me a big brain, but it didn't come with an instruction manual. I meditate because life is too short, And sitting slows it down. I meditate because life is too long and I need to take an occasional break. I meditate because I want to experience the world as Rumi did or Walt Whitman or as Mary Oliver does. I meditate because I now know that enlightenment doesn't exist so I can relax. I meditate because of the Dalai Lama's laugh. I meditate because there are too many advertisements in my head and I'm erasing all but the very best of them. (laughs) I meditate because the physicists say there may be 11 dimensions to reality and I want to get a peek into a few more of them. I meditate because I've discovered that my mind is a great toy and I like to play with it. I meditate because I want to remember that I'm perfectly human. Sometimes I meditate because my heart is breaking. Sometimes I meditate so that my heart will break. I meditate because a Vedanta master once told me that in Hindi my name Nisker means non-doer. <laughs> I meditate because I'm growing old and want to become more familiar with emptiness. I meditate because Robert Thurman called it an evolutionary sport and I want to be on the home team. I meditate because I'm composed of a hundred trillion cells and from time to time I need to reassure them that we're all in this together. I meditate because it's such a relief to spend time ignoring myself. I meditate because my country spends more money on weapons than all the other nations in the world combined. 
If I had more courage, I'd probably emulate myself. I meditate because I'm building a bigger and better perspective, and occasionally I need to add a new window. So, this evening, uh, you're lucky, because I'm going to offer you a very special spiritual path. The path of the fool. And it may already be your path. (laughs) And the secret teaching is to admit it and embrace it. It is a, a venerated ancient path. can be traced back to the early Taoists in China who realized that there were such great forces, great streams of causes and conditions that moved everything along that all they could do really was surrender and go with the flow, as we have learned to uh, call it. As Chuang Tzu, one of the great sages of Taoism, said, do you really think you can take over the universe and improve it? The Taoists also understood that they couldn't understand anything about what was going on. It was too big, too mysterious. We don't have the, the level of consciousness and, and uh, smarts to be able to understand it. Besides, how can you understand the nature of a box when you're inside of it? As Lao Tzu says, others are smart and clever. They claim to know what's going on. I alone am dull and stupid. He was being facetious, of course. And Chuang Tzu, echoing that sentiment, said, those who know they are fools are not the biggest fools. To put it another way, Lao Tzu says that famous line from the Tao Te Ching, those who know don't speak, those who speak don't know. But you can't really trust that line, can you? Maybe Chuang Tzu put it better when he said, show me someone who has forgotten words. I would like to have a word with him. (laughs) In case you haven't been exposed to your, what I call your essential foolish nature, I've heard about essential nature a lot in Buddhism. Well, part of it is your essential foolish nature. In case you haven't been exposed to it, Try meditation. I'll never forget my first meditation retreat. It was so shocking to realize that my mind is out of control. You know, uh, you're, you're told to just watch your breath, and, you, and you, that's your intention. You're just going to be present with the breath. And then you start to see that the mind continues to think and make plans and have fantasies and, you know, without even consulting you, right? (laughs) It just goes on. It's shocking when you first realize that. I mean, when I first started meditating and and my first retreat, I I was 26 years old. I had a 
good college degree and I had done some therapy, but nobody in my culture told me that you could develop this power of mindfulness and actually step outside of your drama and observe yourself. And that first look was very disturbing. (laughs) One of the most disturbing parts was uh, that my mind, while I was meditating, insisted on singing to me. And, you know, pop songs with good hooks (laughs) would repeat over and over and over in my head. I thought I was going crazy. I couldn't turn them off. Eventually they faded, but for a while I I was really, really going nuts. It was all that imprinting in the late 60s, you know, with the drugs and the... And I worked at a radio station, and so, you know, it was rolling on a rib. It was just (laughs) in there. It was in there. Most important was to see how much of uh, what goes on inside of me uh, is based on ancient animal instincts and uh, old habits of mind, and really how little freedom there was with, uh, with this condition that I was living with. I'm still often shocked when I, when I sit down to meditate, or especially when I go on retreat, to remember and recall that I haven't been all that mindful up until the time I sat down. And I realize how much of my life is lived unconsciously, really, because that's what it is. Recently in meditation, uh, I reflected on the irony of this practice and how I spent the first half of my life learning how to think, And now I'm spending the second half of my life learning how to ignore my thinking. (laughs) What was I thinking? I mean, you know. (laughs) And I actually came to meditation first because I realized that my mind had a thinking problem. (laughs) Started thinking first thing in the morning. Kept thinking even the middle of the day. Had to have a couple thoughts before I went to sleep at night, you know. I needed an intervention. It was just clear. And, uh, and meditation was it. The Buddha saw that we're all fools, really. Neurotic, confused. Barely, barely worthy of the label conscious. After his enlightenment, he said, I'm not going to go teach because nobody's going to understand what I just realized. And uh, in in the story, uh, the god Brahma comes down and says, listen, there are some people out there with just a little dust in their eyes, so come for them and, you know, they'll understand. And that's you. You have just a little dust in your eyes and you've come and, you you know, there's some reason you're here. You know that... uh, you know, that you're somewhat uh, unconscious and that you want to become more conscious. And you do see in in meditation, you do begin to see how the whole process works and how enslaved you are to the past, to your early psychological conditioning and to your your basic animal nature. and, uh, And then you see it clearly. And how you believe in every brain jerk reaction that happens in your in your mind, and and you vow you'll never be fooled again. And then, of course, you go out and you get fooled again, because 
It's so deeply embedded. It's so deeply, deeply ingrained. The only thing, the only option really left to you is to accept your basic foolish nature. You see, if you accept that you're a fool, you can make no mistakes. Every time I think, you know, I'm, I'm really, I'm, I'm kind of a foolish, I'm a foolish being. I immediately relax. I don't have to live up to some ideal of a constantly mindful, compassionate, you know. I can be just who I am, which is someone a little weak of will. Um, someone who's often caught up in the mundane dramas of his life and and times. There's great relief in accepting your basic foolish nature. Just as there's great relief in accepting the first noble truth. In accepting the first noble truth that life is filled with suffering, you realize that you have not been singled out for special punishment. <laughs> that this is, these are the conditions that we're all assigned or born into. And likewise, if you accept your foolish nature, you begin to understand that it's not you, it's the human condition. Because it, as, you, as you begin to meditate and, and, and begin to see what's going on in meditation, you realize that you are not your fault. Really. I mean, did you choose this? Did you choose to be in this body with this brain and nervous system? No. I mean, I, when I, I don't remember a catalog of choices for body parts and body type was offered when I was born. You know, would you like eyes in the front and the back? Would you like to swim, fly, or walk as your primary means of locomotion? No, you just get the standard issue, you know, biped, vertebrate, mid-sized mammal, big forebrain. You know, that's it. You, you, You don't get to choose your personality. The geneticists say we're all uh, born with a particular temperament to be aggressive or withdrawn or novelty-seeking, reward-dependent. And the psychologists say whatever part of our personality isn't set at birth will be firmly in place long before we have any choice in the matter in early childhood. So that brings us to the fact that we don't get to choose our parents the dear ones who will set our lifelong neurosis for us. <laughs> so it's like we're not free to be. We're not free to be who we are. We're forced to be who we are, essentially. You're not your fault. I mean, evolution has made us who we are. Do you know that right now inside your skull is a fully functioning reptilian brain and a fully functioning mammalian brain or limbic system, and then the new human brain or neocortex. And uh, the three brains, one brain doesn't sort of override the other two brains, the earlier brain. They're, they're very intimately interconnected. And there is some speculation among scientists uh, of late that we use our new human brain primarily to make excuses for the behavior generated by the other two brains. <laughs> really. 
that we're not so much a rational being as we are a rationalizing being. <laughs> Each of us is perfectly human. And we are a species of fools. I mean, I say that with a, a, a very compassionate and respectful way. I mean, you know, it's not demeaning. I'm not... I mean, you know what I mean. <laughs> I kind of think of it as uh, that we're caught in between. We're, we're at this stage in, in the evolution of consciousness on this planet where we're kind of half asleep and half awake. You think about it, 2,500 years ago, the Buddha, Lao Tzu, Socrates, I mean, that was a revolution in self-awareness. And now, of course, we have Darwin and Freud and Jung and Einstein. I mean, we're getting this whole new understanding of who we are, but we're still basically uh, who we were 2,500 years ago. We're, we're basically who we were 40,000, 50,000 years ago. The, the evolutionary scientists say we're still using brains designed primarily for members of small tribes of hunter-gatherers which explains our addiction to shopping. <laughs> For sure. You know, if it's out there, you go get it. It's just, that's just what you do. But essentially, we're not our fault. We're not our fault. I mean, it's so strange. Sometimes I think about us here in, in meditating, you know, trying just to be, just trying, I just want to be. You know, it should be the simplest thing to just be, but, you know, evolution gave us all this uh, equipment to keep, keep us busy worrying about our, uh, our survival. Now, what, one thing that really makes us foolish is our sense of self-importance and uh, sort of overweening pride at being humans. Uh, it might have arisen because we do seem to have power over all the other species on the planet, except, uh, of course, the viruses. Uh, I think that there's something to the idea that when we stood up, you know, uh, we started to feel like we were above it all, and that we were better than the crawlers, you know, we were walkers, and this is, uh, well, we came eventually to see ourselves as, as especially created, you know, that we're so, this, our self-awareness uh, was so strange and different than other, other species, at least so far, that we came to believe that we were specially created and the whole of creation was made for us and uh, by a deity who watched and cared for us. This is Darwin from his secret note- notebooks. Man, in his arrogance, thinks himself a great work, worthy of the interposition of a, of a deity. It is our arrogance, our admiration of ourselves. Um, Stephen Jay Gould said, you know, uh, an intelligent octopus or a conscious octopus wouldn't go around, you don't think, uh, being proud of its eight arms. You know, it's just what he has, it's just what he's given. Darwin said publishing his theory of our descent from apes was like 
committing murder in his secret notebooks because it would he knew it would so shatter our pride and uh, our, our sense of ourselves as being what it's all about. And the wife of the Bishop of Worcester, on hearing of Darwin's theory back then, supposedly exclaimed, Oh dear, let us, let us hope that it is not true, and if it is, let us pray that it will not become generally known. <laughs> I, I just saw a T-shirt uh, from the Santa Cruz, uh, from UC Santa Cruz Biology Department. It reads, you share 25% of your DNA with bananas. Get over yourself. <laughs> but, I mean, I don't have to go through any kind of real long litany to, as proof of our foolishness as a species. I mean, there's a few things I could mention like uh, the nuclear arms race, for instance. Boy, was that a dumb idea. You know that, I mean, those of you who are old enough will know, uh, during the Cold War, the United States and Soviet Union had enough nuclear weapons to blow up the entire planet ten times over. They even made up a new word to, to describe the, the, the arms race called overkill. And it was part of the... Uh, military philosophy of mutual assured destruction or mad and that the the reasoning behind this was that if both sides could blow up the other side an equal number of times then neither side would try it more recently the pentagon has come up with uh, smaller or is working on smaller nuclear weapons that they believe could be used in war without triggering a whole big holocaust. So they've, they've changed their philosophy now. It's called officially nuclear utilization targeting strategy. <laughs> Nuts. <laughs> so they've gone consciously from mad to nuts. How about global warming? I mean, who knew, you know? We were all driving around thinking, you know, this is great. We're going to be, we're going to, we're going to be happy someday, you know. And <laughs> I mean, who knew the world was? For so long, we thought the world was flat and stationary. I mean, it looks kind of, you know, it's. Who knew we were just hurling through space at many thousands of miles an hour? You know, that's. And, and there's a sign of our foolishness. You know, every century or so, all of our truths, all of our understanding gets overturned. And we still are convinced that today's truth is it, you know. Um, as the Firesign Theater once said, everything you know is wrong. What was really stupid was uh, a few decades ago, some scientists uh, renamed our species Homo sapiens sapiens, or twice wise, or twice knowing humans, which I think means that we know that we know. I think that's what they meant, or they wanted to convey. Um, I think it could also mean that we have to hear something at least twice before we know it. I think that, I mean, it would be easier to live up to that, you know. 
I think meditation is some, somewhat similar to twice knowing, you know? You kind of step outside of one level of consciousness. It's kind of a double consciousness that you develop. And you know how hard it is to maintain that. So, you know, to become a, a species that is walking around that's twice knowing, we'll never get there. <laughs> or we'll get there, but, you know, it'll be down the road a piece. And in fact, we can't assume that evolution's going to stop with us, you know. That's, that's the weird thing, you know. We, we, we just kind of assume that we are the crown of creation and, you know, it's done. Um, Mark Twain, I think, said if man had created man, he would be ashamed of his, his work. Um, uh, I, I think that someday, maybe in, you know, a few more, a few thousand more generations, that people will be able to be mindful without twisting their legs and sitting. I mean, mindfulness will kind of come as part of the package, and they'll look back at us and they'll say, oh, they struggled so hard just to be aware of themselves. You know? <laughs> It'll be like the way we now look back at, uh, you know, look at the apes, and, you know, maybe they'll, they'll, they'll study us. You know, they'll, they'll put some of us in experiments, see if they can teach us how to stop talking or something. <laughs> Alan Watts. Alan Watts uh, wanted us to lighten up. He wrote, What we need is a view of ourselves that is less grandiose. He writes, All the other species of life seem to be free from our human scheming and self-importance. The birds and beasts indeed pursue their business of eating and breeding with the utmost devotion, but they do not pretend that it serves higher ends or that it makes a significant contribution to the progress of the world. He says, Our human projects and talents, such as the powers of thought, are indeed natural marvels. But then so are the immense beaks of the toucans and the fabulous tails of the birds of paradise, the towering necks of the giraffes. And when we can view our talents as just one among many of nature's wonders, then our self-importance dissolves in laughter, because we begin to see that we have become too cunning and practical for our own good. And for this very reason, we are in need of a new philosophy, which, like nature, has no purpose or consequence other than itself. It's about just being. The Buddha's teaching really uh, was aimed at um, deconstructing this human experience and trying to break our attachment and our sentimentality about this life. Not that we don't care about this life and take care of our bodies and each other and love, our, love, you know, love this existence, but he understood that our intense attachment and identification with what's going on here is really what is at the core of our suffering. Um, he has us go through the mind and the body, looking at uh, breath and sensations and, and uh, emotions and thoughts. And, and over and over again, he says, and, and if you really examine it carefully, you'll see this is not I, this is not me, this is not mine. That all of this happens sort of on its own. He has us uh, reflect on the 32 parts of the body, from the hair to the urine. 
It's called a reflection on the repulsive. To break our sense of attachment to this physical form. In the Visuddhi Magga, one of the commentaries, it says, the human face is, quote, full of holes like an insect's nest. The brain is a lump of marrow the color of a toadstool or the color of milk gone sour. The, the Buddha and, and his followers were not romantics, you know? I mean, sometimes I think we in the West sort of confuse uh, the issue a bit, you know? It's about, for us, it's a lot about, uh, it's about self-improvement, you know? Polish, the, polish this personality and this self and go out and have more fun. Um, <laughs> I don't want to disillusion you, but uh, something else going on. Okay, a path, the fool's path. A path without uh, methods, uh, uh, practices, and methods of realization is not a worthy path. So I will suggest some practices. First of all, I want to suggest some collective practices, fool's practices, so that we can do this as a, as a group because it is a, a species of fools that we, we are members of, or citizens of, no, members of. So... Um, I suggest that we make uh, April Fool's Day an international holiday and really pump it up with some some kind of pomp and ritual and really make it... And that sort of like the Jews on Yom Kippur when they come together and they beat their breast and they, they admit that they've been sinning, we would get together and uh, admit our foolishness. And I think the best way would be to meet in... in we, we could meet in big groups and have it televised... Uh, around the world, we could do like a six billion people kazoo concert or something, you know. <laughs> Everybody knows, row, row, row your boat, right? But I like the idea of us meeting in small groups, uh, community groups, and doing the Homer Simpson forehead slapping mudra, you know, um, and admitting, uh, so I want to practice with you here for just to give you a sense of what it's like, okay? So get your palm ready, and... Uh, Either hand, either hand. If you're right-handed, do it with your left hand, yeah. Okay, so now, uh, all of you who believed that after the Soviet Union collapsed and the Cold War ended, things would get better in the world. Don't. Okay, those who believed in the, in the purity of baseball or the purity of the Catholic priesthood, or the purity of the American electoral process. Don't. Okay, those who believe that meditation would solve all your problems. Don't. And uh, one, one last one. Those who still believe that someday they will get it all together. Don't. See, now, doesn't that feel good? You know, it's sort of like... Yeah, we're all in this together, and misery loves company. We also need some individual practices. And this, I'm, I'm going to be a little more serious with this, because, you know, I think that we often get into this kind of straining, kind of struggle in meditation, and and. I think if you're struggling too much in, in meditation, you're doing it wrong. 
it's it's really it's really about finding a way to relax. So some individual practices. I, to start, I think a good exercise for everyone is to go to a mirror and make some of your usual expressions in the mirror. Make some faces in the mirror. You know your your serious look, your serious interested look. You know, <laughs> or or your charming come hither kind of look. You know, and. Two or three of those, you know, and you immediately start to to kind of giggle at yourself, you know. You see the masks that you put on. And then, of course, you can see, if you look uh, closely, you can see the outline of the skull and realize that uh, someday when your face wears away, there will be the ultimate uh, kind of joke. The fool's way of approaching meditation practice, it truly is to try to put a kind of bemused smile on your mindfulness, on your observer, on the one who knows. Uh, you know, you can't always do it, but you know, the Buddha's smiling. Of all the religious, spiritual figures in the world, you know, there's that sweet little smile there, always. Just, uh, you know, it's almost as enigmatic as the Mona Lisa's. But, you know, he's just, he's seeing it all, the phenomena just move move by. And if you can develop that kind of bemusement with your own self, with the processes going on here, the you know, all the junk that moves through, uh, that's really, that's really the attitude to, to develop. It's not some great, you know, project that you're going to have to finish before you die or you'll, you know, or you'll get another life, or you won't get another life, or, you know, I don't know about that. I used to believe in, in reincarnation, but that was in a past life. Uh, <laughs> sometimes I can't resist jokes, you know. Um, no, but if you're really a serious Buddhist and believe in it all, you know, then, then life's a bitch, and then you die, and then you're reborn, and then life's a bitch, and then you die, and then you know, it's just, it's not pretty. But here's a suggestion by Chogyam Trungpa. Uh, do your meditation at the simple matter-of-fact level, instead of with some meaningful religious or philosophical kind of undertone. In other words, have a sense of humor about what you are doing. Remember, things aren't as heavy as we think they are. Instead, they are floating above the ground, funny, swift, and lucid. It's a kind of existential strangeness that, you know, you can bring to your meditation practice. Part of it comes with bringing the the don't-know mind to your meditation. Not being familiar with what you're going to observe, you know. What is this? Who is this? What is this life? Who are these voices? Where did this thought come from? Usually we get so involved in the content of our thinking that we we rarely see the process or question who's doing the thinking. Almost as if an alien had come down and was kind of watching you, you know. It's Alan Watts said, if an alien were to were to come here and see one of us, he'd say, What's that wiggly thing over there? <laughs> the beauty of the Dharma is really that as we learn about our 
foolish condition, it, it starts to make us softer with ourselves and more compassionate. As you see in, in meditation, you know, that we are a species struggling to awaken, struggling to be more conscious, and that it's, it's you know, it's really hard uh, to not s- slip up and believe in the, the old stories and the habits of mind. It's just the way we're built. You know, and accepting that, embracing that, is very forgiving and uh, can really be advanced. It's an advanced kind of path. As William Blake said, if the fool would persist in his folly, her folly, she would become wise. In, uh, in my first book, uh, Essential Crazy Wisdom, I talked about the fool, the great fool, uh, and the foolish fool. And the foolish fool can move out of the foolish foolishness and move into being the great fool or the holy fool. And I described that even uh, you know, Jesus and, and Buddha and Socrates really were considered fools in their own time, you know. Um, and that uh, the great fool doesn't try to fit in like the foolish fool kind of often tries to be one of the crowd or do as the rest of the civilization does. And, but the, the great fool has his own or his or her own visions and lives them fully. I, Jack tells the story, speaking of holy fools, great fools, uh, the story of the Dalai Lama. You might, you might have heard, heard it. He was doing the Kali Chakra uh, teachings in, at Madison Square Garden in New York. You know, thousands of people in a big, it's a big, very powerful, serious ceremony of the Wheel of Time. And... Uh, with the big Tibetan horns and the big hats and the you know the very Catholic the huge ritual and he came and he they'd made up his throne and put a little mattress there where so he'd be comfortable it was two days of teaching and he came and he sat down on this little mattress and he bounced and uh, he kind of smiled and looked around at the thousands of people and then he did it again <laughs> and he did it a couple times you know just. Just delightful, you know, just right there. Play, playful. Uh, I'll never forget when Thich Nhat Hanh first came to the, to, uh, the United States and on a tour of teaching and came to the San Francisco Zen Center and told the Zen students to smile while they meditated. They could not figure that out. They had never, you know, this was serious business. And, and uh, they were shocked by that instruction. Thich Nhat Hanh used to have all these little gatas, little sayings that he would use throughout the day and at different times to lighten things up and to remind himself to be present. And I remember one of my favorites was, Breathing in, I am still water. Remembering the temporary nature of governments, I breathe out. This is Lou Welch. A small sentence to drive yourself sane. The next time you are doing something absolutely ordinary, 
Or even better, the next time you are doing something absolutely necessary, such as peeing, washing the dishes, cleaning the room, say to yourself, so, it's all come to this. (laughs) That's the fool's path. Okay, so let me just finish with that. I'll read one more poem here. Um, This is Ikkyu. I love this poem. Passion's red thread is infinite like the earth, always under me. Now I'm 70. Still alive, looking up every night and snapping my fingers at time and the promise of love. Listen, I'd like to give you something, but what would help? Self, other, right, wrong? Wasting your life, arguing with it, thinking about it. Face it. You're happy. Don't worry, please. How many times do I have to say it? There is no way not to be who you are and where. There is no way not to be who you are and where. Thank you all for coming tonight. I wish you the best of luck on your, on your foolish path. And uh, truly, uh, it's, a, it's a great path. And I, I invite, invite you to, uh, to walk it, uh, skip it. Slither along it. <laughs> Next Monday, May 19th, Ken McLeod will be here. Very interesting uh, man, philosopher. Uh, today's May 19th? Well, I'm not Ken McLeod. Anyway, next Monday, Ken McLeod will be here, introduced by Jack uh, Cornfield. Dinner will be served. And it will be a great help if everyone could, uh, you know, clear your cushions away and, and put the chairs back uh, over there, stack them. And uh, I hope to see you somewhere on the path. Thank you very much. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.